One of the things that I want to introduce today is the concept of intimacy, a concept that I think we don't really understand very well. It's a lot like trying to define love. What I've discovered as a therapist, I'm a, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I received uh, my PhD uh, from Brigham Young University. And uh, one of the interesting things that I've discovered about our human relationships is that we really don't understand intimacy and we really don't understand love. And one of my goals in this class is to help you find and create true intimacy in your life. Uh, the Victor L. Brown, let me start off by, by giving you a quote by Dr. Victor L. Brown. He said, the lives of most people are histories of their search for intimacy, of their attempts to be socially, physically, and emotionally close to others. Now think about that for a second. If our lives are a search for intimacy and our history, how we spend our time, how we live our lives is to be socially, physically, and emotionally close to others, how good at it are we? Are we comfortable creating truly intimate relationships or do we struggle? And if we struggle, why? So today I'm going to be introducing some concepts that are, will, are designed to help you find true intimacy. So, I'm going to begin by discussing a little bit about what intimacy is, and then I'm going to start talking about how you can begin the process of finding true intimacy in your life, whether you're married or whether you're single. The goal is to help you find and create true intimacy in your life and in your relationships. Dr. Victor L. Brown, he also said, achieving intimacy is a demanding activity. Intimacy is one of the highest ideals of the human heart and as such deserves the most exceptional effort. And so I commend you for listening to this show today because it tells me that you are engaged, that you want to learn more, that you want to create a more deep and an intimate relationship. You're doing something that many people are unwilling to do. You're paying the price to discover what it takes to succeed in relationships. So I commend you for that. It's a great thing. Thank you for joining me. Again, you're here with Dr. Kevin Skinner. We're going to be talking about finding and creating true intimacy in our relationships. And I, I can't tell you how excited I am for this topic. This is a course that I have just created. I've taught it once uh, at our offices locally. And the content that you're going to get in this is something that absolutely excites me to death. Because if you will incorporate the material that we're putting in, that I've put into this class, into your life and into your relationships, I guarantee you that you can have a deeper level of intimacy in your relationships. So what is intimacy? What exactly is it? Well, what we've discovered, according to research, is that it's an interpersonal process that involves communication of personal feelings and information to another person who responds warmly and sympathetically. This response validates the first person's experience and it's repeated over and over again. That's a definition by Reese and Shaver from a 1988 journal article was also defined this way, intimacy is a closeness and interdependence of partners, the extent of self-disclosure, and the warmth or affection experienced within our relationships. So there's a couple of key points there. The interdependence of partners, meaning two people mutually caring and reciprocating in the relationship, a closeness that's felt. It's the extent of self-disclosure. What we've discovered about intimacy is, is the more self-disclosure you have, the more intimate you feel in your relationships, and intimacy is also a warmth or affection that is experienced within the relationship. So those are some general definitions of intimacy. Again, it's a very difficult thing to define because it's much like love. We can define it in different ways. 
One of the exciting things that I've discovered is six types of intimacy that I'm going to be sharing later on to help you assess yourself and your relationship in six very critical types of intimacy. But before we get there, I don't want to jump the gun. We need to discuss what the concept of how to create it in your life. Because we can't create it in a relationship until you've created it within yourself. And so we're going to be talking about that, the concept of wholeness. Uh, Each human being must establish his or her own identity. For each of us is unique, unlike any other person. Without this identity, there is no whole person to offer to another. No whole person can accept the gift of intimacy from another. In other words, you have to be a whole person... Otherwise, you can't receive the gift of intimacy from another human being. That also comes from Victor L. Brown's writings. So one of the things that we're going to be talking about is how to make you a whole person, how to be a whole person. And I guarantee you in the process here, we're going to teach you how to have more self-confidence and more self-worth in yourself so you can create intimate relationships. Whole people make whole relationships. Now, wholeness is confidently developing healthy, intimate relationships. When you feel whole, you will do that. So as we get started here, I want to help you do an assessment kind of on yourself. And this comes from, this comes from a general happiness scale that you can find on AuthenticHappiness.com that was written by Dr. Martin Seligman. And if, you, if you're familiar with Dr. Seligman's work, he does some fantastic work on authentic happiness and finding happiness and wholeness in our lives and in our relationships. I absolutely love his work because he focuses on the positive part of psychology. He focuses on the positive part of life. And one of the things that excites me to death is we can focus on the positive. We can engage in life and be happy people. But we can't do that until we feel whole ourselves. And so that's where we're going to spend the first part of this class, talking about wholeness and healthy and wellness within ourselves. We're going to talk about beliefs or perceptions that prevent us from attaching to people and relationships. I'm going to talk a little bit about my article, The Fear of Intimacy Club. And then we're going to be spending some time learning how to stop sabotaging our relationship by synchronizing our messages. And so that's going to be the first part of this Finding Intimacy class. Then in the second part of class, we're going to be talking about the different types of intimacy and how you can incorporate those into your relationships. So let's get started on finding the whole you. First and foremost, I want to encourage you to go to AuthenticHappiness.com and take Dr. Martin Seligman's test. It's called the General Happiness Scale. Now let me tell you why I want you to do this. There's basically four questions there, and I'm going to read those questions to you, but I would like you to consider the answers, your personal answers to this test. So if you're listening and would like to do this without going there because you don't have internet access, let me just read these questions to you. This is on a one to seven Likert scale. One, I'm not a very happy person. Or seven, I am a very happy person. So question number one, in general, I consider myself, number one, not a very happy person. Number seven, a very happy person. So mark your score there between one and seven. Number two, compared to most of my peers, I consider myself, number one, less happy, number seven, more happy. Number three, some people are generally very happy. They enjoy life regardless of what is going on, getting the most out of everything. To what extent does this characterization describe you? Number one, not at all. Number seven, a great deal. 
And number four, some people are generally not very happy. Although they are not depressed, they never seem as happy as they might be. To what extent does this characterization describe you? Number one, a great deal. Number seven, not at all. Now, what I would encourage you to do is add up your scores and divide by four. Now that you've done that, the average mean for these four questions is a 4.8. A 4.8 is right down the middle. A majority of people are not very happy. A 4.8, okay? And so how did you score yourself? Now, if you scored yourself lower, I would suggest that as a whole, your life, you're not feeling very good about yourself. You're not very happy. You're not very content with the life that you are currently living. Now, the question is, is why? If you try to engage in a healthy relationship or in a, in a relationship and you don't feel that you yourself are healthy, the relationship can't make you healthy. That's what researchers have consistently found, that relationships can't make us healthy or happy by itself. There has to be other elements. And so I would encourage you to take this test, the general happiness scale, and consider, am I a happy person? Am I not a happy person? If I'm not happy, why not? If I am happy, what are the elements in my life that I enjoy? And so that's something to consider. What are the things that prevent me from being happy? Again, we're trying to get you to focus on the wholeness of self, the wholeness of self, the happiness of self. And if there are elements in your life that are currently preventing you from feeling healthy and whole, we need to get those out of your life and put into your life the things that could make you feel more satisfied with your current life. All right, so now let's move on for a second. So how do we figure out why we're not happy? Suppose you're a person who struggles to not be happy. Is it your past? Did you grow up in a home or, or an environment that was not conducive to personal growth? It reminds me of a story of a friend of mine who grew up in a home where she was not valued by her family. She was criticized. She was made to feel bad. She was a, uh, a person who almost singled out and was looked at as the family's scapegoat, the bad person, the black sheep, whatever you want to call her. If there was a problem, it seemed to be her fault. She did not attach to members of her family. She did not get close to her members of her family. And as a consequence, she turned outward for support. She's turned outward for, for emotional connection. But in reality, those relationships were also very much on the surface. So what happens to an individual in that type of an environment that grows up in that type of an environment? Or what about the young man who grows up in a home where he sees his dad and mom being abusive? Dad beats mom. Dad throws mom. Dad yells at mom. Dad comes home drunk. What happens to this boy growing up in that type of an environment? He grows up not feeling close to dad, feeling like mom's not protecting him, but mom's really just surviving. What happens to this child as they grow up in their intimate relationships? Have we ever considered as a society that those types of relationships, how destructive they are to the children? Sure we have. We've considered it, but what do we do about it? What do we do to help those children form more close relationships because they've grown up with a fear of intimacy, a fear of letting people close to them because the people closest to them, mom and dad, were either A, unavailable or not able to nurture and care for them as they deserve. Children are entitled 
to healthy relationships between a mom and a dad. And when that does not occur, we have in a situation where we have situations where children begin to form what we call insecure attachment bonds. And that's what I want to talk about at this point. If you want to become a whole person, we also need to look back into your life and we need to say, what prevents me from getting close to people? What prevents me from allowing others into me, see, or intimacy, letting people into my life? There has been some phenomenal research on this topic. Over the last 30, 40 years, researchers have been looking at early childhood and how that influences our relationships as adults. And what happens and what they've discovered is that children form attachment bonds early in their lives. Very, very early, in fact. They say that within the first year, a child has formed an attachment bond with a single parental figure. With one figure, because that child learns to depend on that parent. And generally, it's the mother because the mother's the primary caretaker in the earliest stages of their lives. So... What we've discovered then is when children begin to form this attachment bond with the mother, what happens if that mother is unavailable? What happens if that mother is in high stress? Now, think about the consequences. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Did you know that abuse goes up in relationships during pregnancies? Or when the child has first been born, there's, there's more stress in the relationships? So what happens in these children's lives? They, they sometimes will form a, an understanding or a belief that they are not wanted or that their needs won't be met. Now, that's early childhood between ages one and three or birth to three, I should say. And then what happens with them over time? Well, researchers have found that there's basically three styles of attachment that occur. And the first, and, and I'll read this to you, this also comes from Dr. Seligman's work, but it is in, originally comes from uh, an article written by uh, Hazen and Schaefer in uh, 1987 in a journal, journal article that they wrote. But here's, here's, here's a way to assess yourself on your type of attachment. And let me give you a little bit more background here. So these children grow up in these homes and either they're attached or they're not attached to parents. Either they're comfortable or they're not. In some situations, their parents have been able to meet their needs. And when their parents meet the children's needs, whether that be emotional, whether that be physical, whether that be with touch, when these parents meet these children's needs, then these children form what they call secure attachment relationships. And if they don't meet those needs, here's what happens. They begin to disconnect and they don't believe that their needs will be met. In some situations, they crave it so much that they long after it. They will go after their parent. They'll go after looking for the approval, the affection of the significant other. Well, what happens to them is that they get into relationships as, as teenagers and as adults where they're needy and they're longing for acceptance. And so they seek approval of others. And that is what we call the anxious ambivalence love. Number three is what we call avoidant. And avoidant people just completely give up on receiving uh, affection, touch, care, appreciation, love, and they don't even believe that love exists. So those are the three, secure, anxious, ambivalent, and avoidant. Now I'm going to read the, these statements and you kind of identify which category you fit in. Number one, I find it relatively easy to get close to others and am comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. I don't often worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. That's number one. That's secure attachment style. Number two, 
I am somewhat uncomfortable being close to others. I find it difficult to trust them completely, to allow myself to depend on them. I am nervous when someone gets too close and often partners want me to be more intimate than I am comfortable being. That is the avoidant attachment style. Number three, I find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I often worry that my partner doesn't really love me or won't want to stay with me. I want to merge completely with another person and this desire scares people away. So number one was the secure, number two was the avoidant, and then the one I just read, number three, is the anxious ambivalent. Now, if you find yourself in the avoidant or anxious ambivalent category or find yourself a mixture between the two of them, here's what researchers have found for you in terms of what some of the challenges you may have. Number one, if you are avoidant, you simply don't believe that relationships can turn out good. Individuals who score high in the avoidant are more prone to keep people at a distance, and yet they will still get into relationships. But the relationships oftentimes fail because there is no connection. Because if you're avoidant, you don't believe that really love exists. And so you grow in a relationship and you get into the relationship, but you don't really grow, I should say. The anxious, ambivalent people, while they are dating, what happens to them is they actually push people away. They'll get close enough and then they'll push people away, expecting or anticipating rejection. If you would like an example of this in a movie, uh, the movie Pay It Forward. If you've ever seen the movie, there's a scenario there where this alcoholic woman is raising her single son. He does a kind act and, and it's basically a, what they call pay it forward. And people, he changed a lot of people's lives because they, he encouraged them to do good deeds to help other people. Well, in this situation, this alcoholic mother is dating her son's school teacher. And there's a point where the school teacher, with his own discomfort, his own discomfort, she, they start getting a little bit close, but he pushes her away because he's afraid of being rejected. That is a perfect example of the anxious, ambivalent individual. Now, what we've discovered is that people who are anxious, ambivalent, they get into relationships and they go through many relationships, but those relationships are, end up not being fulfilling enough because they don't feel like their needs are being met or they struggle with jealousy and if they literally have a fear of being rejected or a fear of being abandoned. That is the anxious, ambivalent style of love and it's a very challenging one for people. And then the avoidant comes from people simply can't love me. Now, People don't live in a box. You don't just form those attachment styles with all, all on your own. You do so because you have a history, because you have a past, and you really would benefit from understanding your own past. Where did you formulate your style of love? And I've just described those three styles of attachment, but we could also call them three styles of love. Now, I would submit to you that the more we focus on learning to become secure in our relationships, the more likely we are to succeed, the more likely we are to have intimate, healthy relationships. So you've got a question. What happens if I'm avoidant? Or what happens if I'm anxious, ambivalent? Am I stuck there for life? Is there nothing I can do about it? Well, no, absolutely. There is something you can do about it. And that's the exciting part of what I want to share with you. If you've been stuck in the anxious avoidant state or the ambivalent state, here's what you can do. First step Look back into your past and look at where you stopped trusting in people. Look at where, and you may not even remember some things, but it doesn't just occur in our early childhood. What about the child or the five-year-old, the six-year-old, the seven-year-old 
who feels neglected by a parent or feels needy doesn't get the attention from a father. The teenager who is looking for some type of affection or some type of care and is made fun of or ridiculed at school. Every one of these situations can lead someone to stop believing in themselves. And they stop believing in relationships or they start becoming extra needy because they need attention. And what we have to do is understand how we started this, where it began. And once we start to understand where it began, then we have to look at what our reality is. Of course, back then, my parents were unavailable. And so one of the things that I encourage people to do is to start looking back into their past, into their history and say, you know what, what was mom and dad like? What issues were they dealing with in my childhood? Well, of course, dad and mom were always fighting and mom left at age or dad left at age two. Mom probably was struggling before then. That wasn't a personal thing against me. So one of the first things we have to do is we have to understand why our parents or why our primary caretaker was unavailable. Or if they were available, maybe it was a, a, a peer experience as a child. Or maybe it was an abusive situation with a neighbor. But what happens is it just takes one singular experience that can make us question whether people are trustworthy, reliable, dependable. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to go back into our past and assess it and understand it. Far too many times we try to forget the past, we try to ignore the past and say it didn't exist. Well, if it didn't exist, how come you're acting the way you are today? So I highly recommend that we go back into the past and we say, I don't have to live that way. I can trust people. I can learn to trust people. Very critical point. And if you're willing to pay that price, you're much more likely to learn how to succeed in your relationships. Successful people are people who are secure people. They're happy. They're trusting in people. They expect to succeed in their relationships. They value people and they value themselves. So secure people. Let me read that again. The type of attachment style of secure, I find it relatively easy to get close to others and am comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. The key words there, I am comfortable depending on them. Dependence means that I trust people, that I accept that people will do what they say they will do. Now, if you are in an environment, and this is the key part that I want to get to next, Because you can't form a healthy attachment with people if the people around you are unhealthy. But before I get there, let me just read a couple of other things about attachment. And then we're going to talk about the key people in your life. Several researchers have contributed to the study of attachment styles. For example, Dr. John Bowlby, his work has been used to describe how children become emotionally attached and emotionally distressed to their primary caregiver. And so here are the th- more definitions of the three types. Individuals who struggle with anxious ambivalent are generally, they fall in love frequently and easily, but have difficulty finding true love. This is anxious ambivalent again. They also have more self-doubts than individuals who are avoidant or secure. They express love as involving obsession, a strong desire for reciprocation and union, They have emotional highs and lows. They have extreme sexual attraction and they have common feelings of jealousy. Those are the character traits of individuals struggling 
as adults with anxious, ambivalent relationship style. Did you know that that equals about 20% of the dating population and sometimes even into marriage? 20% of the population fit in that category. The avoidant personality is individuals with this relationship style are more doubtful of the existence or the durability of romantic love. And they believe that they do not need a love partner in order to be happy. The avoidant love style often leads individuals to have a fear of intimacy. Again, they have emotional highs and lows. They also experience jealousy in their relationships. And the jealousy stems for them because they, they want a relationship, but they simply don't trust other people. And so they experience more powerful, jealous feelings. And this is about 25% of all people who fit into this category. These are, again, adults. Now let's look at the secure people. Here are, their, here are their characteristics. And I encourage you to write these down because this is what we're trying to develop inside of you. Secure people. These individuals generally believe in enduring love. They find others trustworthy and have confidence in themselves. They describe their most important love relationships as happy, friendly, and trusting. They are willing to support their partner despite their partner's faults. They tend to have longer lasting relationships and they make up about 55 to 60% of the dating and relationship population. So many people grow up in homes where their parents, and I'm not trying to blame parents, their parents simply weren't capable. And why weren't they capable? Because they're parents. Far too many people, they look at their parents and say, man, my parents really weren't, you know, they weren't functional. Well, parents aren't functional because of something that's happened in their lives. They don't live in a vacuum either. They have had experiences that have made them have a fear of intimacy, a fear of closeness, a fear to connect with other people. I believe we live in a society of people who have a lot of fear in relationships and they're afraid to connect with other human beings. And so one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways we do that is we still get into relationships, but we keep them at a distance rather than letting people into us, into me see. And so we're talking about different types of, we'll be talking about the different types of intimacy, but that's something for you to consider. So did you find out, are you, are you anxious, ambivalent? Are you avoidant? Or are you secure? Now, that's just something based upon what we've talked about. I encourage you to think about. Now, I'm going to be talking about how to develop more secure relationships later on in this class. But right now, I want to continue on with the theme of becoming whole. And I want you to now look at what you're doing in your life to create intimacy and how to find that type of intimacy in your life. So let's begin this part of the process by identifying who the key people are in your life. And the reason why I want you to do this is because sometimes people will create an environment where it's just safe for them, or they will keep people at a distance and there really won't be a positive influence on their life, or they're in a relationship that simply isn't healthy. So one of the things I'd like you to do right now is take some time and identify the key people in your life. Write down the top five people in your life, the five people who have the most influence, the most the, 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 the most a part of your life. And that might be, if you're married, that might be a spouse. If you're dating, that might be the person you're dating. If you're single, it might be one of your parents. If uh, you're single, it could be one of your roommates or your peers. But I want you to write down the five key people in your life today. Now, some people say, well, I don't have five key people. All right, that's fine. But I still want you to write down five people who you interact with. It might be a boss. It might be anybody. So write down the five key people in your life 
Now what I want you to do, if you've got that list down, I want you to, on a positive to negative ratio, I want you to write down the positive interaction that you have with that person. What percentage of it is positive and what percentage of it is negative. So for example, if I was doing it with my wife, I'd say she's number one and I'd say probably 90 to 95% of my interaction with my wife is positive. So I'd say somewhere between 5 to 10%, there's some negative, this tension, conflict, normal to marriage, normal to relationships, but I'd say it's probably a 90 to 95 to 5 to 10 ratio. All right, so who's next in my life? Well, let's see, it's probably my children because I have a significant interaction with my children. Well, with my children, it's probably about uh, 80 to 85% positive and 20 to 15, 15 to 20% negative. Okay, and I would go through my list that way and I would say, okay, who, are, how are these people influencing my life? How am I attaching to these people or even these people kept at a distance? And the whole purpose of this exercise is to help you assess whether you are letting people into your life. Let me share a story as it relates with this. I was talking with an individual who said that he really never, ever lets people into his life. This person was married, but he'd been living years and years of his life disconnected in his marriage. Now imagine that. Years and years of being disconnected in your marriage. 16 years, 20 years of feeling distant from your spouse. Now, that's in the that's in a marital relationship, but some people they feel like they've never really attached to anybody. And what I want to say to them is if you're around people, if the key people around you are not helping you validate who you are, your worth isn't being validated, then we need to seriously consider getting you into relationships or around people who can be validating of you as a person. And so the exercise here is to help you increase your awareness of who the key people are in your life and where you are getting and receiving validation for who you are. So now that you've made that list and you've written down the positive to negative, I'm going to give you an assignment. And that assignment is specifically to identify the people in your life who are positive, on more positive than negative, and I want you to focus on developing the relationships with the people who are most positive. Now, if, if the person is a negative and it's your spouse, then the question we've got to ask is, all right, what are we doing to help improve the intimacy in our relationship? And so I will encourage you to listen later on in the show when we talk about the different types of intimacy, how you could work to increase those levels of intimacy in your marriage. Now, you may not want to increase the level of intimacy because something's occurred, you've been hurt, offended in some way, but I'm going to invite you to consider this thought, that you probably spend more time thinking about the negative relationships that you have than the positive relationships that you have. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to turn the negative relationships into positive ones and enhance the positive relationships in our life. Okay? So that's one of the things that we can do to become more whole is to develop relationships with people on a more whole basis, create healthy, intimate relationships. And maybe you're asking, well, what if I don't know how to let people into my life? What if I don't know how to increase the wholeness and the happiness in my life or to create a better relationship? Then I would suggest that you spend time talking and studying about friendships. What do true friends do? How do they treat each other? And I would invite you to get out a journal and write down what true friends do. Then what I would suggest to you is do what true friends do. 
they call each other up. And the concept here is that they increase their intimate experiences with other human beings. So if you were to make a list today at the end of it, at the end of every day, say, how many intimate things did I do today? How many intimate interactions did I have with people today? Did I smile at people? Did I call up a friend to say hi? What are the intimate experiences that I personally am creating? And I would suggest to you the more positive, intimate experiences you have with the people around you, the deeper your friendships will grow and they will become, especially if you do constantly and are regularly doing and creating intimate experiences. And I'll spend some more time on the concept of intimate experiences later on in the class, but I invite you to consider that part of it. Now, the next thing I'm going to invite you to consider, and, and this, is, uh, this is more for your self-awareness, uh, once you've identified the key people in your life and you're trying to put positive people into your life and enhance those relationships and then focus on improving the negative ones if you choose, the next part of this I'm going to ask you to do is a question of how you spend your discretionary time. Now, what does this have to do with intimacy? Well, here's it has everything to do with intimacy. What you do with your personal time dictates whether you have healthy, intimate relationships. You can isolate yourself and avoid people with your discretionary time. And what we've discovered is that when you hide from people, when you're away, detached from people, you are not feeling as good about yourself as you possibly can. I read a fascinating, fascinating quote. It says this, Love becomes a fountain even unto the consuming of our flesh in the growing person. Not a source of drudgery, but a captivating awareness that pulls us even in our most miserable hours. Until our duty sense emerges into an energy of heart, until love is the feeling tone at the root of all our feelings and actions, we are still infants trying to get credit for our moral strength. In other words, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get strength from a place that isn't going to be healthy or fulfilling if we aren't finding the energy of love in our heart. Here's another concept that I think is important. Even the opposites within us must merge to harmonize before we can truly love. And here's what that means to me. When we are at odds, we're isolating ourselves, we're distancing ourselves from people. That's not true with who we really want to be. As Victor L. Brown said, I quoted that in the beginning, the lives of most people are histories of their search for intimacy, to be physically, emotionally close to other human beings. So when we are not engaging in those types of activities, we're completely isolating ourselves away from relationships. What we're doing is we're preventing ourselves from becoming more whole and complete. Now, some people say, well, are you advocating that we're always with someone? No, I'm not at all. I believe we need time alone. We need time to nurture our inner self. But there's a balance there that requires us to strengthen the intimacy in our relationship. So my question for you is, what are you doing to, with your discretionary time? What are you doing? What type of activities are you doing? Are you being so immersed in TV or the internet or other things that prevent you from creating healthy relationships? Now, if, as you do an assessment, do a pie chart and write down the top five things that you do with your time. So make a list of the top five things you do with your discretionary time. How effective are those things in developing you, helping you develop healthy relationships? How much time are you spending nurturing uh, your inner self? How much time are you spending on exercise? Or are you engaging in activities that pull you away from 
healthy relationships. I can guarantee you that when couples have problems, they generally disconnect and they begin to do activities or events that are not nurturing to the relationship, like they'll spend more time on the internet or watching TV rather than talking and communicating. I was talking with one individual and he said, my wife and I have basically disconnected. We aren't close to each other anymore. And when she comes home from work, she basically gets on the internet and she was she's playing games, solitaire. She's playing all of these things. And she basically does it all night long. And we go to bed, get up, go to work, do, do day in, day out that kind of lifestyle. Now, how sad is that? How absolutely sad is that? In a healthy, intimate relationship, we have to look at our discretionary time and we have to ask, are we taking time to nurture the relationship and help it grow? And I would suggest that if you're single and your discretionary time is spent in avoidance, watching TV, the class that I taught, the first time I taught this class, I had a lady raise her hand and, and I was talking about this very concept and she said, all I do is watch TV. I'm absolutely, that's all I do. I, I'm afraid to do anything, to interact with people, to mingle with people, to be involved socially. And, and so her lifestyle is simply not conducive to her succeeding in her relationships. I'm going to tell you a heartfelt secret right here. If you want to succeed, you've got to believe you can see, succeed and you've got to spend time doing the things that can help you succeed. You got to set some goals, establish some priorities. If you want to be the best you, you've got to figure out what your goals and your dreams and your aspirations are for your life. And in particular, spend time focusing on the things that you can do that can make your life better in more healthy, intimate relationships. How can I be a better friend? How can I develop friendships? How can I engage? Are there things that I need to do? Do I need to get out of debt? Do I need to uh, watch what I eat so I eat more healthy? Because sometimes our health drains our energy. Do I need to get a better job or better education so people are going to want to be more, they, they like people who are succeeding? Do, what do I need to do to make myself better? Do I need to get in better physical shape? Do I need to lose weight? Do I need to, what do I need to do to make myself more appealing, more attractive, more healthy? That happens in marriage and that happens to single people. But what are your goals for yourself and your relationships? How much time are you spending developing your relationship skills, right? So if you're using your discretionary time to succeed, you're going to be focusing on things that are going to improve your life and make you better. Maybe you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best in my, in my job. I'm going to be a great student. I'm going to be a healthy person. So when people say, see me, they say, that person's a healthy person, emotionally, physically, spiritually. That person is a go-getter. Or are they not? Now, that my point with discretionary time is this. The way you use your discretionary time in making yourself better and making yourself whole makes you a more attractive person. And so I encourage you to make yourself as attractive as you can possibly be. And I'm not just talking physical appearance. I'm talking the energy and the emotions that you send to people. So that's one of the things that I encourage you to think about, how you're dealing with your discretionary time and who are the key people in your life. Now, Let's move on to the next part. And this is a very fascinating concept. It's something that I've done a significant amount of mind time and my own energy studying about. And here is something that it's really a simple thing, but it's very important. What are the top five things that you think about day to day? Now, this may sound a little strange, but what you think about is what you do. It's who you are. It's what you become. And so one of the things I'm going to invite you to do is write down 
the top five things you think about day to day? Is it your family? Is it your work? Is it your school? Is it your finances? I would guarantee that most of you listening, you have a significant amount of time that you spend thinking about your relationships. Whether that's your spouse, whether that's your children, whether that's the person you're dating if you're single, whether that's your your coworkers, you spend a significant amount of time thinking about relationships. Now, write down the five things that you think about the most. Now, I don't care what it is, just make that list and, and I'll just give you a brief minute to write down the five things that you think about from day to day. Now, the next thing I'm going to ask you to do is I want you to rank them. Which one is the most, if you had to say of the five things that you've written down, which one is the most important to you? Which one do you think about the very most? Now, it, you'll find a very interesting thing as you go about this exercise. You're going to discover that what's on your mind a lot is, is, is whatever, that, whatever that may be, is probably a problem that your mind is trying to solve. Now, here's how the mind works. The mind likes to solve problems. And so it spends a lot of time thinking about it because it's trying to figure out what's the solution? What's the solution? What do I do about this? What do I do about this? Now, here's an interesting correlation. When your mind can't find a solution, it's more likely to use its discretionary time with avoidance tactics. That's why people will turn on the TV. That's why people will drink. That's why people will do whatever it takes to avoid the problems that they can't solve. And so they do things because their mind doesn't know how to solve the problem. You see the correlation here. So if you're thinking about something and your mind can't find the solution, it basically says to itself, well, do something to avoid it. And I'm encouraging you to do exactly the opposite. Go get the answer. Create the answer. Do something to solve the problem. And in particular, in your relationships, if you want to succeed in relationships, spend time doing the things that will lead you to success. It's just an absolute thrilling concept because the more you think about positive things, the more healthy you will be. Now, I want to share a, I want to share a very fun concept here. I was teaching this in my, in my last class, and I had two, two different ladies um, do this on the board. They were on different sides of the room, and I wrote up their answers on the board. And one lady, she, you know, she's, she seems pretty relatively happy. She's, she's upbeat and upgoing, and, and she wrote down a list of, I, well, I, you know, I, I take care of my mom, and I take, do these things, and I spend these times in positive ways, and that's the things that she was thinking about. And then I asked her, okay, now you've got this list of five things. I want you to list the positive to negative ratio on each of the five things, which is something that I would now invite you to do. What percentage of those things that you think about day to day are positive, and what percentage of those things that you think about are negative? So let's say, for example, that you are thinking about your relationship with your spouse, and that's the number one thing that you think about or you're in a dating relationship, the number one thing that you think about is the person that you're dating. Or if you aren't dating anybody, the number one thing that you're thinking about is how do I get more dates or how do I, how do I interact with people to increase my social experiences? What percentage of your time is spent on the positive thinking about that and what percentage of it is negative? Well, the first lady in this class, most everything was 80 to 90 positive, 10 to 20 negative. And so I said, great, that's, that's, you know, that tells me a lot about your life and how content you are with where you are in your life. And she says, relatively speaking, I am. So now I go to the other lady 
And uh, she's just been in a situation where her relationship, uh, she's just broken up with her fiance and uh, she's in a high amount of stress. And she says, number one is my relationship. And I said, okay, so what, and and she listed a couple of other things. Then I think the fourth thing was her family. And uh, she said, uh, number one is five positive, 95 negative on this relationship. Now, instantly that tells me an awful lot about where her mind time is and what she's struggling with. And I said, you've been having a very hard time emotionally, haven't you? And, and, and a lot of difficulty. And she said, I have been because I can't figure out what to do with this relationship. It's really hard and I don't know where to go with it. And I said, so what, what else is contributing to this? And she then described her dating relationship with this individual in which, which there was abuse and there was this negative interaction here. And it was absolutely amazing. As she went through this whole process of positive to negative, my, at the end of the time, I said to her, your mind has been focusing so much on the negative, so much on, the, on trying to solve this, that that has probably been dominating your life. You probably aren't sleeping well. You probably, things aren't going well at work or school, whatever you're engaged in, because your mind has this problem and it doesn't know what to do with it. And so I encouraged her, just like I would encourage you, if you write down five things and the negative ratio is much higher than the positive, then I'm going to say that is the thing that you are probably thinking about the very most. And so I strongly, strongly recommend that what you do is, is spend time trying to find the positive things that can either A, come up with solutions to that, or B, you're going to need to get it out of your thoughts and your mind and your life. And in her situation, probably the best thing that she could have done, now I don't know if she did this or not, was basically terminate this relationship permanently with this boy, as she had described abusive. I mean, after she described the experience with this person, the entire class was was encouraging her to get out of that relationship. Now her friends had told her the same thing, but she she was feeling like I'm I'm this old and I need this I need to figure this out. And what I would say is if you're in that negative of a relationship, it doesn't get better just because of time. You have to, you, you, some people have characteristics that they simply aren't able to be in relationships. So what are the top five things do you think about day to day? If you rank those things and then put positive to negative, the negative things are what your mind think about. And our goal for creating and finding true intimacy is to get you thinking about positive things and doing positive things in your life. It's absolutely exhilarating when you put the positive things in your life and you do them over and over and over again to the point where you feel more optimistic. Now, the next secret I'm going to tell you about this concept is this. What you think about today is probably not what you're going to be thinking about next week. And what you're thinking about next week isn't what you're going to be thinking about next month unless there's a common theme that is unresolved. And so what I would suggest is that if there's a common theme that prevents you from feeling at peace and feeling happy and feeling content, then we need to get at that issue and we need to seek solutions for that problem. And so in terms of finding and creating true intimacy in your life, if your marital problems, if you're having marital problems and you don't know how to solve them, get as much information as you can about solving problems. Find a way to seek forgiveness from your spouse if you've offended them. If you're in a dating relationship, look for as much information as you can to determine what's preventing me from feeling at peace in this relationship. Or if you're feeling good about the relationship, keep doing the positive things that you've been doing. So back to the concept, 
the top five things you think about day to day, if you want to do that on a regular basis, even a daily basis, you will find that there are common threads or things that you're thinking about. And the things that you think the most about are the things, the problems that you have to solve in your mind. And that could be anything from a relationship to finances to, to work stress. But what we're looking for is finding solutions. And I would submit to you that whole people seek out solutions and don't live constantly with problem after problem after problem after problem. They seek solutions and they find those solutions. That's what secure people do in their relationships. And so I invite you to consider this concept on a regular basis. Write down the top five things that you think about day to day. And if it's relationships, then how can I be create how can I create more healthy, intimate relationships? So that's one of the things that I invite you to consider. This is uh, one of the most powerful tools that I've discovered recently. Now, next time I'm going to introduce the concept of how your values influence your relationships and how they influence how you feel about yourself. Then I'm going to talk about what we call synchronized messages. This will be how to send the messages out that we want to in our relationships so we can send the most accurate perception of ourself to other people so other people want to be a part of our lives. We'll also talk about how your fears might be overriding your desire to connect with other people. We're going to teach you about how to send the messages that are consistent with what you really want. And we're going to help you synchronize your messages so what you say is really what you want in your intimate relationships with other people. Then we're going to talk about the fear of intimacy and what prevents us from finding true uh, intimacy in our relationships. And in the process of that, we're going to be talking about a concept that I call reaction sequences. 